0: Welcome to Some Assembly Required, a bi-weekly design podcast where we will be covering a range of topics from tech, industrial and product design, and sustainability.
1: I'm Pablo Samoylis, and I'm George Wyatt. We're both product designers currently studying at the University of Sussex. This is episode six,
0: Repairability. Last episode, we discussed the Internet of Things. Be sure to check out that episode and others after this.
1: You may be able to hear a difference in audio quality that is due to the ongoing coronavirus crisis at the time of recording therefore we cannot be recording together at university but we're doing our best to keep the show as normal as possible
0: yes so this is repairability it covers a wide range of topics all the way from kind of what individuals do what companies and businesses do how it ties into education and kind of people's personal products and side
1: hustles and where do we begin? Yeah, it's a tricky one. I, I've been doing quite a lot of reading on a few different more deep top, topics, but I think um, a good place to start off the discussion would just be you know, what the average person is capable of, and when it comes to repairability. The one thing that came to my mind was the whole idea of what people get taught, and oftentimes when you see things about you know schools and education, maybe 60, 70 years ago people would get taught a lot more sort of handcraft and repairing skills, which possibly don't happen now. So I wonder if previous generations are better at it than
0: we are. I think you're right. And the education system has changed kind of fundamentally all over the world since the industrial revolution. And you can see the focus has really gone from educating people so that they can work in like factories and, complete jobs to educating people so that they are educated and so that they're able to learn and comprehend and analyze things um and i think a product of the earlier style of education although obviously not kind of teaching people to be factory kids but a development since then was a much more practical skill set that we
1: don't see today yeah i because you see these things about you know kids used to get taught bricklaying and stuff like that. You know, even to that sort of level of repair, it was often, yeah. you know, segregated by sex. So the men would be taught out of bricklay, the women would be taught out to sew, that sort of thing. But I almost feel like they've completely got rid of that of curriculum in most countries now.
0: Yeah, they have. And although obviously there's still design technology style courses in a lot of places, uh the uk has been a huge proponent of that but many 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 places in the us just don't do it anymore
1: Uh, do they not yeah i
0: no. so it's it's still around in some places but the concept of like a shop class as they call it is becoming more and more unusual uh whereas dt in england is still quite big although it's changed it's no longer lots of woodworking and metalworking it's a lot more prototyping and building
1: yeah, well, actually, that's, f- that's one thing I was going to say, because I took up um, product design, uh, design technology, whatever you, whatever the kind of school calls it. When I moved schools in year nine, would have been here. Mm. And that's where I started doing it all. And then I ended up doing GCSEs, A-levels, degree. But when I speak to my parents, like my mum did like home tech sort of stuff when she was at schools. Uh, my yeah. dad did woodwork. And, you know, these were all different separate things. They got, I guess, a lot more focus. Whereas for me, it was just DT. DT covered all of those sort of things.
0: Yeah, I saw a fundamental changer, honestly, with myself where I did IGCSE DT and that was all resistant materials. It was lots of woodworking. I didn't do metalworking, but some people did. Um, And it was building a project that you had designed. And although there were elements of kind of CAD, it was all very much focused on hand built design and, you know, dovetail joints and all that crap. And then going to the US, where I wanted to do very similar courses, the only thing my school offered was electronics and robotics.
1: Do you think that that's possibly because you're in that West Coast, you know, California area where there's a lot of software and kind of technology? Uh, I think that was definitely a factor, mm. but
0: I would be surprised to find schools outside of that area suddenly having dt programs because of their location yeah yeah so during that time i much more took advantage of maker spaces and we'll talk about those where i could learn to laser cut 3d print cnc mill
1: all those cool technologies Mm. yeah i mean there's a lot of technologies out there which are often you know to the average person who hasn't tried it uh You know, three D printing and laser cutting and CNC machining might sound extremely complicated and difficult, but you know what I found when I started getting to use them is it's really not. (laughs) Um, No, they're
0: they're they're very simple technologies. There's a lot of little things that kind of just take practice to understand, but you don't have to take some
1: course to know how to do them. No, exactly. And I think something else um, that's interesting on the repairability topic is that I've noticed as a lot of people find it really satisfying and interesting and enjoyable not just to do themselves but to watch because i've seen a lot of you know you get facebook videos all the time and the amount of time is i mean maybe if we go back to our you know data episode this might be because they're targeting me and they know what i like but i get a lot of things coming up on my facebook which are just like someone repairing someone or someone diy making something Mm. The explosion of DIY
0: has been huge, although for a lot of it it's only to feed an algorithm and make money. Yes, a lot of it so is. So that is something to keep in mind. Um but also of course, I think it's almost a dream for some people because they're limited by the technology that we use
1: today being almost too difficult to repair. Yeah, there is there is a bit of that. Because I mean that's one of the things yeah that we put down here was, you know, modern technology, is it too difficult to repair? Is that is it too complicated? You know, I wouldn't I wouldn't know where to start to try and repair my phone if if it yeah, broke, I really
0: I wouldn't be able to do that at all. Where I notice it is like I have in the past taken apart and rebuilt lawn mowers because I wanted to learn how engines worked. And I could apply that easily to an old car. Um little kind of manual trans transmission diesel car. Fairly easy to do. I've looked under the bonnets of like newer kind of any car made past the year 2000 or anything with automatic transmission and you just have no
1: idea what's going on. Mm, Yeah I mean my car's from like 2007 or something like that and I look under the bonnet and I know what the things are because you have to to pass your test sort of thing. I can point things out but I would have no idea what I was really looking at. Yeah
0: I think many many people who aren't mechanics Who have grown up being being able to kind of do basic mechanics, would find it impossible to do even the simplest repairs on a modern car. Mm. I think that can kind of be extrapolated to a lot of other
1: products nowadays as well.
0: Absolutely, and in a way, it's a good thing because it means the cars are safer. They're being designed better, and all those things that come with a kind of an advanced technology. But it also stops the individual from being able to quick fix things.
1: Mm. And this is often one of the reasons why people. Don't fix things, and also not just because they don't know how, but because of the complexity and the way it's designed, it's often a hell of a lot cheaper to just buy a new one than it is to repair something.
0: And that ties importantly into the idea that some products or designs that aren't as repairable end up having a pretty large negative effect on the environment.
1: Yeah, precisely.
0: Unless they can be disposed of
1: properly. Mm. And You know, I was looking into that a little bit and oftentimes the cost comes actually from identifying the issue with these sort of things than necessarily just the replacement. If something breaks, you first got to work out what's broken, why it's broken and then try and fix it. And oftentimes it's that diagnosis, which is the hardest part to do. It takes the longest amount of time and, you know, on a business sense then has the most cost. With advanced technologies, especially, kind
0: of diagnosis involves you, you have to test one thing at a time to make sure that you don't get any conflicting results. And if you've got a super, super complex mechanism like an iPhone,
1: there's so much to test to figure out what exactly is wrong. Mm. Well, that's the thing. And I've seen a bit about this um, idea. This is more of electronics and technology, I suppose. But the idea that you can have self-diagnosis built in, and there are some things that do this well already. But my instant thought when I saw that was, does it actually always work? Because, you know, you've got troubleshooters on your computers, like your Windows PCs. And if something goes wrong and it says, would you like to run the troubleshooter? The amount of times I've clicked that and it said, oh, I don't know the problem. It always seems Mm. to be that the problem is never one that they've predicted, I suppose. And that can cause issues. Although I did see... um, that apparently MRI machines, which of course are ridiculously expensive, very complicated, they actually have these huge data banks from like all the MRI machines in the world. And so they can actually identify what's about to break before it even does. Which is a really cool idea. That's fascinating. And it's a yeah, Internet of Things. Connection. Yeah, yeah, it sort of links into our Internet of Things that we talked about last week.
0: So the MRI machines connect to each other globally so that they can update each other and essentially provide a better medical service to everyone.
1: Yeah, sort of. I don't know the full ins and outs, but it must be something along those lines where it just, they can sort of see from all the data from past MRI machines and other MRI machines. They can see what's most likely to break next and when. And so they can get the parts ready or get the parts changed before it even happens.
0: So obviously repair is a multifaceted concept, but what makes it worth it for the consumer and for the producer?
1: Yeah, that's the interesting point here. For the consumer, I mean, the things that come to mind are, I suppose, enjoyment. As I said before, people who seem to enjoy this sort of stuff. Um, Also, there's a potential that it can save money, but it could cost more. Um, But it also saves them the sort of attachment to the product. One example is if people that have had like leather boots or something like that, maybe they've had them for like 20 years and these boots have been everywhere with them, they've done so much with them they've got a lot of attachment to these shoes and they've also those sort of products actually end up kind of becoming personal because to you they're much more comfortable than they would be to anyone else because they've sort of molded themselves around your foot i think the main balance there is people enjoy fixing things
0: and it it comes with a kind of natural sense of in, like an endorphin of like yeah, yeah i did it but if you're busy if you don't have time and then time is money people struggle with the kind of is it worth it as well as if it's more expensive, and there's a, there's a lot of roadblocks for a repair to be successful for a consumer.
1: Yeah, there often is, and there's often roadworks for it to be worth it for the manufacturer as well, because these manufacturing lines are built to make a product, get it all the way down to the end, send it off. You know, to be able to try and you know repair it, they've got to take it apart, they've got to work out what's going wrong with it, which is going to cost them a lot of money, and oftentimes it's it's a trade off between, you know, the cost that's gonna to be to do to, to do that and the monetary benefit that they receive because at the end of the day they've got to keep mm. their business running.
0: their their only real benefit is that consumers appreciate that and being able to kind of fix your own thing is something that a lot of people look to a company and see that as a positive and as a higher chance to buy from them or to recommend from them but of course as a producer that's one fewer product you're selling because they already have it yeah and that's why companies with lifetime warranties like the north face companies that thrive off of selling really high quality stuff that they say will last forever what they focus on more is that we sell you this once it's expensive as hell And we guarantee it will work for life. And therefore, you should tell your people about it. And that's why, among professionals, they become incredibly well-known and supported. But obviously, that doesn't apply to tech. And why is that?
1: Yeah, it's interesting, actually. I guess with tech, things develop quite a lot more quickly, I suppose, with tech. If you've got an iPhone and they said, oh, this will last you for the lifetime, you know, 10 years down the line, your phone is probably now unable to do the things that a lot of other people are because it doesn't have the technology in it that could be one reason
0: yeah so technology changes a lot and that's i agree that's the main reason but why is it that even so we see so many products released with one or two year warranties when they're products that should be lasting five to ten years i i feel like there's a culture that exists just kind of deeper than that like obviously tech are replaceable they're replaceable products and you can't have a laptop for life but the fact that people or at least businesses treat them as something that you are getting every couple of years kind of suggests that they don't see the benefit of having
1: like a kind of consistent user base it's it's a tricky one to think that there's got to be economic and societal reasons i think that are promoting that and i think to
0: an extent it probably ties into the fact that we discuss this with data different companies having an ecosystem that people are locked into they don't need to prove themselves as the kind of who you go to because you're already with them and that's it
1: yeah yeah i suppose so and actually that's something to think of with tech for example apple we often talk about apple um but with apple if you buy a new iphone or a new mac Using their like cloud services, you can instantly, you know, transfer all your data onto the new device, and uh, that is kind of the key thing to most people: is the data. If someone's phone breaks, often the first thing that they'll ask is, "Can I get my photos off of it? Can I get this off of it? Can I get this off of?"
0: That's something people appreciate. So, one of the main proponents of the open source initiative is the Open Source Initiative, which is an organization that promotes and protects open source software and communities. Their whole focus is very software-based, but it's always about making sure that... more than making sure, it's about encouraging organizations, people, and businesses to make elements of their product available for free and open to everyone, which A develops a community of people around it who build and improve and adapt and develop things, as well as kind of allowing creativity to flow and it stops
1: the restriction of things. Yeah, so bas basically open sourcing is just allowing the public to, you know, see the blueprint. It started off in software, which is where the name comes from. It was literally have having the software's source code opening. And pretty much all web websites and you know software is open source in that sense but it is a thing which is going into hardware
0: it definitely is going to hardware and you wrote down some examples of global village which is a construction set
1: yeah i found this so it's a guy called Marcin jacobowski and yeah so he's the co-founder of this global village construction set basically he just decided one day that he wanted to help people and make something for himself and he basically set up a farm he bought a tractor and it broke. He got it repaired by the manufacturer for a big cost and then it broke again. And at that point he got, you know, quite frustrated at it. And he then set up this construction set, which is basically a set of blueprints, in essence, building your own village. It has, you know, brick making machines, you know, tractors, loads of stuff. Ovens to circuit makers, is what they said. And yeah, it's basically these blueprints for how to make these products cheaper from just kind of base materials and base skills. Yeah, it's, it's this idea of having this open source database.
0: And that's fantastic because it not only lets people build something themselves, but it lets people modify and repair things that may already exist and kind of stops that business based restriction around a kind of prof- profit driven system. You see this really a lot with designs specifically for kind of laser cutting, 3D printing and CAD. There are so many services that offer kind of a hub for open source everything and you just search in whatever it is you're looking for and you'll find hundreds of people's takes on it. And not only can you download them and use them for whatever you want, but you can also modify them. So if you need something as a starter and don't just want to start from scratch, they exist and It kind of provides the four freedoms of open source.
1: Mm. Yeah. So those are transparency, usage, modification, and economic freedom, which basically means you're allowed through open source to, you know, use them, obviously, Uh, transparency, you see them modification. As you said, you can, you can edit things, use stuff as a starting block, and then you're allowed to sell those. You're allowed to, you know, make a living off of selling modifications and other people's designs. And yeah, it's, it's, it's this whole thing of extending a design's accessibility,
0: I suppose. Yeah, and when something's accessible to more people, that's always beneficial. Now, while the open source initiative is big on raising awareness about this and getting companies, businesses, individuals to consider open source, one of the large proponents of protecting it are creative commons. Now, Creative Commons are an online licensing agency, but they're just freely available for anyone to use. And it essentially allows you to put on a Creative Commons attribution license to anything that you make and want to distribute online. How it starts is you go to their site, creativecommons.org, and you get very simple options. It's do you want people to be able to adapt your work? And do you want people to use your work commercially? That's all you have to do. As long as you publicly post that this license is held, that's it. So this is a super easy way for anybody to put anything online with a license that they set up however they want.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've seen that quite a lot through, you know, images. Images are often a thing that's Creative Commons covered. Yeah, images, videos, uh, websites. Most websites are. Yeah, it is that. It's basically, it's allowing for this open source freedom whilst retaining... I suppose your sort of identity as a person or designer or whatever you are, a photographer, web designer online.
0: And the core element of any of this with open source and with Creative Commons is that you provide credit to whoever worked on it before you.
1: Yeah, and I wonder, I, I don't know of, but there may be. I, I wonder if there is a way for that sort of to translate to hardware and physical
0: open sourcing or not possibly kind of in in the design and manufacturer context yes you know if someone's got a design or a blueprint and then i edit it develop it and post it make it available and i'm saying yes i remixed this person's previous design and improved it like that's great but i think you'd find it more difficult with things that are produced by companies and made open source
1: yeah i mean the other thing that i sort of think about it as well is in essence of with hardware stuff if it's simpler stuff you know technically someone who knows what they're looking at and knows what they're doing could probably just take the product apart and work it out themselves yeah i mean there's never been a limitation on
0: reverse engineering that's not something you can prevent and it's the same thing with software technically any application you've downloaded no matter how much you paid for it you can very easily rip it and use it however you want where open source matters is what you can do with it so it's it's all good and well for me to take a thousand dollar piece of software and change it and make it for myself but i can never share that i can never talk about it publish it because it's owned by them and what i've done is illegal if i then share it so what open source allows for is collaboration yeah i
1: mean and that is the key thing uh it's yeah. i think we'll leave the sort of legality side of things we're not lawyers. <laughs> yeah we're not lawyers. but yeah it's a, and it's a really interesting idea coming back to the repairability side of things because it allows you know your general consumer to be able to see the blueprints of whatever they're using whatever they've got and you know if something breaks it then allows them to know how to repair it in essence you can see the the breakdown of what you've got in your hands and see the parts and know how to fix things
0: And even if they can't repair it themselves and they don't have the skills to do that, they can still troubleshoot,
1: which is half of the work. Mm. And they can find someone maybe that does know what they're looking for, that's not necessarily the manufacturer if the manufacturer doesn't offer those services. Exactly. And the great bridge
0: between kind of the open source movement and how it exists as an online service, because that's really where it thrives, to reality is 3D printing. It lets people build and manufacture designs of all sorts of things from open source designs as well as kind of making their own, and it just gives the average consumer the capability to both create new things, modify things, create replacement parts to an extent, and it's an industry that without open source would have not kicked off the way it has.
1: Oh yeah, no, it wouldn't have. It it did struggle to start with. There is a few things that aren't open sourced with 3D printing, but it on the whole, you know, even most 3D printers are open source. You can see all their parts. Yeah. It's not just the things that you can print. And yeah, it's a fantastic example of an industry that needs it because a lot of people sometimes look at open sourcing and think that it's, you know, hindering progress because, you know, having a patent promote development and I suppose companies vying for better products. But actually it's not always the case.
0: But even so, so patents do really allow for companies to develop and kind of have some control over something unique that they've designed. And obviously being open source is great from a community standpoint, but when a business has a unique selling point, patents are important. But what's core is that they do not last more than 20 years. So no matter what it is, no matter how great your invention is, after 20 years, anyone
1: can copy it. Yeah, in essence, I mean, it has, it kind of has to be because no one person or one company can design everything and there's loads of crossover where things tie into other other projects
0: exactly and there have been many arguments that the copyright system that exists in the uk and the us should follow the patent system more closely i agree with it quite seriously personally i think copyright the way it's currently written doesn't tie well to the way it's used in the web and on the kind of internet but copyright right now lasts for the lifetime of the author, plus another 50 years, which, you know, it's ridiculous that there are things from 100 years ago that are not yet copyright free. I didn't actually know that. I don't, I yeah, I don't know a huge amount about copyrights, to be honest. Yeah, it's an incredibly long time. And of course, it's very valuable. And people have to have intellectual property, like it's a
1: part of life, but 20 to 30 years should be plenty. I don't know. It's It could be a societal shift at all will happen especially with the freeing of data with the internet
0: sort of develops who knows that's my little rant anyway uh 3d printing has become ubiquitously available 10 years ago it was still very restrictive to people who either had a lot of money or who had access to kind of high-tech industry materials and now most libraries in america have 3d printers almost all universities have them maker spaces across all major cities have them and they're available and you can buy them I mean, I bought a 3D printer last week and I've set it up and had it going in not very long and it cost £200.
1: Yeah, they are becoming increasingly accessible. I mean, even when I was at school, we had one 3D printer on our department. That was about five years mm. ago. And I think from what I've seen online, they now have about five in the department. Yeah,
0: the development and kind of evolution of... It's just a very, very accessible technology now. And I think we're going to start to see that with like laser cutters and CNC mills. They're still incredibly expensive, but the price is dropping. Give it a couple more years, they'll be just as available to individuals.
1: Yeah, and that is going to help promote the repair sort of movement because it 3D printers and these sort of devices, which, as you said, to someone who might not have used them might sound complicated, but they're really not. You know, this allows for people who don't have, you know, manufacturing skills or knowledge necessarily to be able to manufacture more complicated things and their own parts and those sorts of
0: things. Yeah. And they're fantastic skills that you can develop. So that ties in really well to the maker movement, which is a concept that has kind of flourished across many, many countries as well. And it's been really pushed by community maker spaces, which are these little businesses or organizations where individuals can get access to really high level manufacturing tools like 3D printers, laser cutters, vinyl cutters, heat presses, routers. At the moment, they still tend to be very expensive. And there's a privilege to being able to just buy a membership to a makerspace they all have classes you can all kind of go and take classes and learn these things so it's made it possible for anyone to technically start to learn a new skill and build something and be creative one of the largest contributors is mit who started the concept of a fab lab or a fabrication lab and it's a non-profit style of makerspace they have a specific charter of some kind of the rules and guidelines that you should follow to have one. And anyone in the world who has a manufacturing space that they want to make available for a very affordable price so they don't profit off of it, they can become a fab lab and get promoted by MIT for nothing. And already These things have begun to pop up everywhere, specifically in kind of developing countries, developing communities where people are able to take a new angle at learning something that isn't provided by their education system.
1: Yeah. And this is one of the things that helps through these, you know, the accessibility of these sort of things. Actually, you know, whilst in sort of developed Western countries, it may often be, you know, people that are doing it for fun. But yeah, these developing countries, this whole idea of repairability and the maker movement really does actually help their country develop quicker because it's allowing all walks of life and all different people at different levels to be able to sort of chip in and help their community
0: it's allowing people to make something develop something that will change for the better
1: yeah it's a powerful tool for sort of self-education and you know looking after yourself your community without having to be restricted by governments or manufacturers and large corporations absolutely And even
0: so, they're starting to become prevalent in education as part of curriculums or as after-school programs. You see them in many schools and universities across the UK and the US,
1: and they're available. It's an interesting one because it cycles back around to what we were saying at the start of the episode about how these repair skills and technical abilities were taught in education in years gone by, and they sort of disappeared. And they are almost kind of coming back now. They are. It, which is an interesting. It's it's sort of cycled round.
0: Yeah. So having discussed all of this and how kind of the maker movement has developed, how open source exists as it is, and repairability as a concept, how do you think the
1: repair experience is right now, and where could it go? Yeah. This is a this is a really huge one. This is something that I found, you know, really interesting. What I was looking at. So I watched this this talk by someone called Grace Kane, who's a design consultant for DCA Design in the UK. It's a very interesting thing that I hadn't really thought about so much, but actually. Part of, you know, repairability in a product actually is the experience that comes from it. A lot of people will throw away a product or something because it's been broken, not necessarily because they can't fix it, but because they don't have time or they're just not interested. They don't, they're not bothered. So actually, you know, building an enjoyable and satisfying experience for the repair itself can really promote repairability. In the whole industry. Yeah.
0: And if someone can take something apart, then they should be able to put it back together. In essence. In essence. And obviously that doesn't exist everywhere, but if that's a kind of ethos that people begin to follow, it allows for this entire system to be stimulated.
1: Yeah, pretty much. Where I'm currently sat, I'm using a Mac for doing this, but I've also actually got a PC next to me. And... You know, the PC that I have is, I use it for gaming and other more high processing tasks, but it has a window in the side and I can see all the components and I can see that most of them are attached. Like I've got fans that are attached just by Philips screw heads. Obviously, you know, this is a, I can see a motherboard and all these cables. I don't really know what I'm doing, but I have taken some p- components out every now and then to, you know, clean them or get dust off them or whatever. But whereas when I look at like my Mac, there's not even a, there's not a screw head to be seen on here, That's, which is obviously part of no. you know, Apple's brand. But instantly, I would feel less confident with re- trying to repair my MacBook than I would my desktop PC because of these visual cues. I suppose I've had two very distinct
0: and fairly recent experiences of repairing things. The first was my Mac Mini, which is the small Apple desktop, and I put in a new hard drive. Now, it is not designed. To be opened up but it was one of the last apple desktops that could be opened up up until the recent mac pro which is of course fully modular so you can open up the bottom case which is mostly to clean it and get some dust out and also to change the ram but i wanted to put in an ssd a uh, solid-state hard drive to make it run like a new computer even though it's a 2012 model and it involved buying a toolkit from iFixit, which is a service that provides, you know, all sorts of things, and that had all the little rubber spatulas and tiny screwdrivers in special shapes that you needed, and then it involved following very, very, very detailed step-by-step instructions to take out the RAM and then disconnect the Wi-Fi plate. Everything is such little cables, because of course everything's built to lock in perfectly. So most of the things you could unscrew and then just kind of had to push them to the side because there wasn't enough space to pull it away. So it was you're always working with like things leaning over your hands because of how tight everything was. But it, compared to my 3D printer, which I built in the last week, which was dead easy, you know, it was Ikea style instructions. Um, obviously it was less complex because they are just less complex, but everything's a lot clearer. You've got three motors, you've got cables going into each one, you've got a sensor next to each one, you've got a cable going into that. It's essentially six cables going into a motherboard, the motherboard connecting to a power supply, and to a screen. And that's it. And already I've realized that the way it's manufactured and the fact that it's open source means that anyone can just make modifications for it. And of course, because it's a 3D printer, you can literally build parts for it using itself. (laughs) <laughs> I find that so sort of brilliant that you can just literally just print new parts for it. It's, it's fantastic. Now, you cannot print a 3D printer, but you can
1: get damn close. Yeah, you can print enough parts to, I guess, save save money. <laughs> and I think this, this it's an interesting one because 3D printers, you know, their target market is people that want to, you know, I suppose, tinker a little bit and make make these yeah. little, little things. Because often the print beds aren't that huge, depending on sort of the ones you get. And the budget ones are generally smaller. And yeah, so it's targeting these users who already have an interest, I suppose, in repair. And this is one Mm. of the things that comes down to the experience as well, because some people would want to repair and some people just wouldn't. But that doesn't mean that they can't have something repaired for them. Um, So one of the examples I saw was, you know, looking at a classic car or an F1 car. Obviously, you know, these are two completely different ends of the spectrum, but both of them are technically repairable. It's not yeah. always about whether something is repairable or not. It's whether people repair it and whether people can repair it. Because, you know, a classic car, anyone can repair it with off-the-shelf components and off-the-shelf tools. And people will buy a classic car simply to repair it. Whereas an F1 car, it can be repaired, but only by trained experts with all these propriety parts and technical know-how an f1 car can go into a pit stop have tires changed have a front wing changed have all these different things done and be out again within three or four seconds
0: yeah they're designed to be repaired much further than how anything else is designed to be repaired but obviously there's you just have to be a professional to do it yeah yeah exactly these are trained huge trained teams and it's designed perfectly for it and that's the difference because in f1 when they go between countries they fly not only their mechanics but their entire workstations get transported with them because everything is designed perfectly to just
1: work it's this you know idea of the repair experience which is actually really interesting thing to look at as you know a brand because you know we've we've talked a bit about apple and we've we've possibly made them out as you know being bad but actually you know they're not so bad they're actually quite good for repair but in a very different way you know they are infamously hard not impossible but hard to repair without expert help and that's where companies like iFixit come in you know iFixit will do their own teardowns and create these kits and these you know specialized tutorials on how to repair certain things in an iphone and it can be very daunting and very mm. difficult to do as a company everything to do with apple is sleek you know quick efficient and you know clean and if A product breaks within Apple's, you know, warranty, which you know we've already discussed. warranties a bit, maybe should be longer. It absolutely should be longer, but yes. But if it breaks during that warranty, you know, you can get in contact with Apple, and they will send you out a box to perfectly fit your iPhone or Apple Watch or Mac back into it to send back to them. They actually make this repair experience, which is really smooth and luxurious, where you then get sent a new product and you're off. You've not had to do anything. That broken product has been sent back to one of their their factories to be repaired and sold second Or They're consciously making that decision that the user doesn't repair it, but they are thinking about repairs. It's done for you as long as you're in that warranty. And that's the catch. Yeah, that is that is the catch where there's, you know, a lot of questions that could be raised about how that should
0: work. Outside of the warranty experience, they have, however, kind of improved in a sense that Apple certified repairers can now get parts delivered straight to them from apple which means that they're no longer having to rely on third-party markets to get them which has already really increased the quality of repairs that aren't done by apple so if you're not covered by their warranty you're not screwed basically mm. but if you compare that to fairphone which is a kind of open source developed system i don't know how to describe
1: it basically what it is it's a phone it's completely modular everything Is in these little modules which has a name on it it could be like you know rear camera or top module bottom corner these sort of things it's got these different components that can easily be switched in and out and they've been designed that way and you know half of their brand identity and their marketing is about repair and it's about the fact that oh you can upgrade this if you want a better quality camera you can buy a better quality module put it into your phone without having to buy a whole new phone and the repair side of things you know, as I said, it's completely baked into their DNA. These modules are designed to easily switch out by just, you know, kind of clicking in and out. And they even have little inspirational messages on the module components themselves.
0: And it's a very unique take on repairability.
1: Yeah. But in essence, it's not really that different to Apple because it's using repair to really accentuate their brand identity, which Apple is doing themselves, but their identity is completely different to Fairphone, And, you know, there is... There is arguments for Apple's system being the way it is. You know, Apple. if Apple tried to start making things modular, which obviously they are trying to do with some products, but there is an element of, you know, loss of performance when it comes to modularity because it creates these other difficulties in the product.
0: Yeah, and one of Apple's main things is just simplicity.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. It, mm. it almost feels like it's going against Apple's brand to do that sort of thing. I think it's just fascinating that
0: repair can be understood and developed in so many ways, and it's never really clear what's the right way. Obviously right to repair as a kind of legal concept is incredibly important. People should be able to, if you own something, they should be able to fix it. They shouldn't be tied into someone having control over when they have to replace their device. So, what's the solution? There isn't one. It just kind of, it is what it is and it changes depending on the market depending on the product and depending on the person
1: yeah it really does and you know this whole idea of repair experience it does come down to the person because different people have a different idea of products yes on that note i think we've kind of covered everything there is i think we've covered everything for now yeah that's it's a huge topic and I'm sure there's things we've missed, but this episode would be way too long, otherwise. (laughs) It definitely is.
0: So make sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so that you never miss an episode. There'll be one in two weeks. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends, family, co-workers, and raccoon.
1: Oh, raccoon.
0: Unlike videos and blogs, podcasts have no algorithm for recommendations and rely entirely on your word of mouth. I'm pointing at you, but you wouldn't know that because you're our listeners.
1: Yeah, so follow us on Instagram, we're at assemble.it, and you get a deeper look into the show and our own work, including behind-the-scenes, outtakes, projects, and updates. As well as some of my 3D prints.
0: I'm posting them all on Instagram. Oh yeah, I've been enjoying seeing those. Yeah, check them out there. Uh, Once more, remember to subscribe to the podcast and share it among your friends, family, co-workers, and local raccoons. We'll see you in two weeks with our next episode.
1: Bye for now. Some Assembly Required is co-hosted and produced by Pablo Samoyles and George Wyeth, and edited by Pablo Samoyles. Music is by Mikey Burtwistle. This is a 76 Productions podcast.